My name is Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here. I know my name, but maybe if you're new, you don't know who this weird guy is talking to you. So uh, I'm the lead pastor here and very, very excited about getting in the word today. But before we do that, I just want to give some shout outs, do a little pulpit talk, which gives shout outs to those uh, last week, our awesome campus ministers, uh, campus director, of course, Eric Stevens, who did a great job for our campus Sunday. We love our campus and students, we believe, change the campus. We will change the world. So we are all about you. Can we give them a hand for last week? They just did a great job. If you weren't here, just be nice. Good job. We, we have such a great church. Hey, a couple of things. We finished our Genesis series, uh, at least part one. We're going to get back to it this summer. How many of you guys were here for most of the Genesis series? A good amount of you, okay? You got outed. Okay, so uh, we had a good time. It's been really good going through Genesis, seeing how awesome God is. And we're just taking a break for a little bit because we are going through the next eight weeks, a series we call The Gospel And. And so this is where we get the opportunity to talk about what the gospel is and how it informs different topics or areas, especially hot topics in our culture and life. Because as a diverse church, as a movement where we all have to come in here and lay down certain preferences. If you come to this church and you're like, I love everything about this church, this might not be the church for you. Like no offense, but like all of us come and go, I don't know about this, I don't know about this, but we're centered around Jesus. And our common unity, our community is built around Jesus. So it's actually good to hang out with people that might not have all the same preferences as you. But we come in the commonality of Jesus because I get to learn so much about so many things that so different from me or my culture as we're a part of this diverse community. That being said, we're not going into the fall just these nice little uh, Bible messages, but we are going to, you know, we see a hornet's nest, let's hit it. So we are doing this thing called Gospel Anne, and this week, starting today, and every, every week we'll do two parts. So starting today, we're going to be talking about the Gospel and Mental Health. Next uh, two weeks from now, we'll do the gospel and sexuality. Well, then we'll do the gospel and race. And then we're going to talk about the gospel and war, really spiritual warfare, culture wars. And so we are not afraid to go there. Stick with us. With that, what we uh, want to encourage you to do is next week will be part two of the gospel and mental health. And we like to do this in our church is have a panel. We'll have a panel of some of our licensed professionals to be able to come up, answer some questions. But in order to do that, we want to ask for you, we got a QR code up here. And you can get your phone out now. It's all good uh, if you want to do that because you might have questions now or throughout the week. We want you to be able to have uh, the ability to log in to ask some questions for our professionals as we continue to talk about mental health. It's a subject we don't talk about a lot in church, but that's what we want to make sure that we're doing because it's very important to talk about as a holistic community, our spirit, our soul, and our body given to Jesus. That being said, we also have, as you saw, these things we call rap sessions. Rap session, like the literal noun definition of this is a usually informal group discussion attended especially by people with shared interests, concerns, or problems. In our church, we like to have dialogue we like to talk because we have different people and different opinions, and we have strong beliefs that we will hold on to and we build foundationally on, and I will die on the hill of certain beliefs that I think, as a Christian, we should all believe. 
And yet there's a lot of beliefs I'm just willing to suffer paper cuts for. Like I'm not gonna make it the thing. And so we can dialogue, we can talk about some of these kind of things in order to come to the table. And that's literally what we do. We open up this room. We'll start uh, September 16th, 7 p.m. on Friday night. We'll actually have the, the chairs out. We'll have tables all around and we come and just have great discussion. Invite friends, feel free to come. Maybe if you wanna know more about what other people are thinking or you're just like, man, I just like to debate. We do have rules of the house, uh, and we want to make sure everyone is heard. But I think sometimes, especially in our culture today, we need to listen twice as much as we talk. So it's good to have dialogue, to listen, and uh, to move forward with that. So we want to invite you out to rap sessions. Today, we are beginning uh, the topic of the gospel and mental health. I want to talk about the gospel, but we're going to save it while we go to communion at the end because it is the most crucial part. What is the gospel? But ultimately, I want to start by talking about mental health specifically. And I want to start by saying this. You've never, anybody in this room, never locked eyes with anyone that doesn't carry around some type of brokenness. I'm not going to make you awkwardly look around the room while we say this, but today is is a little bit more of a solemn approach. You know, a lot of times we have, we're full of faith and the church could just be rah, rah, but sometimes we just need to get down and have some conversations and have some compassion and love towards one another as we're dealing with things like brokenness in our life. Our brokenness comes from a lot of different things, from maybe your family of origin, maybe a dysfunctional family. I mean, I haven't seen a functional one yet. Maybe physical or emotional abuse that is ran rampant in our lives. Maybe lack of love or intimacy or something that was craved in that respect but never given. It could come, many of us, maybe even in this room or our family from a broken marriage. Maybe a marriage that is on the rocks or even right now one that has ended. Brokenness can come from a moral train wreck that we might have steered ourselves into, and then we carry this weight of guilt and shame. It could come from being rejected as a child, maybe due to being overweight or not having the best grades, not being the most popular, being teased, bullied, and all those make us carry relational scars even to this day. It could come, many of us, from a crisis of faith, Maybe brokenness has come because they thought this God was supposed to be loving and kind. How could he allow the unspeakable to invade my life? We know this, and everybody in this room, I don't care who you are, I don't care your perception of yourself or how you carry yourself, you're broken in some way, somehow, including myself, all of us. I'm not sure for you where you're broken. I know some of you as the pastor why or where, knowing your story, knowing what Jesus has done, but also knowing where he's carrying you into because he is ultimately a healer. Sometimes healing takes time. I don't know when you started or when you felt broken, many of you, but I know all of us are human. We all have some kind of broken place within us. The question is, especially in church today and as we go to the scripture here soon is where is God? in the midst of this brokenness? Is God only for those people that are super holy, have like the perfect credit score? 
unblemished driving records. There's nobody in Houston, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Tension-free marriages, maybe valedictorian kids, successful careers. Those people you know that walk around on Sundays with just smiles and the golden halo over their head. Or do we serve a God who's the God of the divorced, the grieving, the confused, the beaten, those that have failed and consider themselves failures? Is our God also the God of the weak, those who've been arrested, the doubting, the abused, the lonely? The rejected? Do we have a God for broken people? I think the Bible clearly says yes. And we need to talk about it. We need to see what kind of God we have and serve. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 14 says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. That doesn't mean he never does discipline or chide, but he will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I love that last line. He knows how weak we are. He knows we're dust. This applies to areas even within our weaknesses and our brokenness for us today that I want to talk about as we talk about mental health. In the scripture, we're going to talk about, coming up in 1 Kings, a man who is dealing with something that millions of us deal with in our culture today. And a lot of us do today. There's a lot of areas we could talk about with mental health, but I want to specifically look at a man and talk about depression. This man that we're going to talk about was not just dealing with a mild case of the blues. Um, this is someone who reached a point of emotional and physical exhaustion. It led him to severe depression and thoughts of even suicide in the scripture. I don't know if you've ever been there before, thinking like that, feeling like that. You probably know someone that has. I'm going to list 10 feelings or descriptors, and I want you to look at these, say maybe yes or no, just silently to yourself if you've experienced these, and especially if you've experienced these in as little of the past two weeks or a two-week period and kind of tally it up here. Number one, persistent, sad, anxious, or empty mood. Loss of interest or pleasure in activities. Restlessness, irritability, or excessive crying. 
Feelings of guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness, helplessness, pessimism. Sleeping too much or too little, early morning awakening, appetite or weight loss or overeating and weight gain, decreased energy or fatigue, feeling slowed down, thoughts of death, suicide or suicide attempts even, difficulty concentrating, remembering or making decisions, persistent physical symptoms that do not respond to treatment, such as headaches, digestive disorders, and chronic pain. Now, you think about that, maybe you have the numbers in your head. This isn't something that I came up with, but actually it's a test from the National Institute of Mental Health. And the test says if you've experienced five or more of those symptoms for more than a two-week period, you probably are dealing with some type or some form of depression. Right now, the World Health Organization estimates depression affects more than 280 million people worldwide and is the world's leading cause of disability. Those of you who have fought it definitely know, or maybe you know someone and how disabling it can be. There's a book by Chuck Swindoll called Encourage Me, and he, he gives a quote of a, a young mother who's battling with depression and related issues, and here's something that she wrote. Depression is debilitating, defeating, deepening gloom, trudging wearily through the grocery store, unable to make a simple choice or to count out correct change, surveying an unbelievably messy house, piles of laundry, work undone, and I'm not even able to lift a finger, doubting that God cares, doubting in my prayers, doubting he's even there, sitting, staring wild-eyed into space, desperately just wanting out, of the human race. Now, before we dig into this, generally speaking, because a lot of us have had some of these challenges, I want to talk quickly about the fact that there is actual medical and clinical depression. And from the church, from the pulpit, we want to acknowledge that. A lot of us grew up in church where just have faith. Uh, and we don't look at some of that, and I think that's a problem that we want to make sure we address because clinical depression is, according to physicians, a disease um, that, that has at least four diseases um, that physicians call mood disorders. And they would say just as diabetes has to do with a body's failure to regulate blood sugar, mood disorders result from the brain's failure to regulate chemicals that control moods. Specifically, nerve cells in the brain communicate with each other by releasing chemicals called neurotransmitters. Norepinephrine and serotonin are the two neurotransmitters involved in depression specifically. When there is an ample supply of these neurotransmitters available to stimulate other nerve cells, you typically feel normal. You still can have some ups and downs, but you aren't fighting the actual illness of depression. With clinical depression, 
Fewer of these neurotransmitters are released because the first nerve cell actually reabsorbs them before they've adequately stimulated other nerve cells. So antidepressant medicines work because they increase the amount of these chemicals for the body. And this is not anything to be ashamed of. It's, it's a phys- physical deficiency that can and I think should be addressed. We believe in both medicine and faith. In the past, we've done the gospel and science. We are not anti that because we believe holistic. God looks at you, spirit, soul, and body. He wants all of you whole, not just one area of you. Those afflicted with this should not feel any more awkward by taking an antidepressant than a diabetic should feel about taking insulin. Amen? Anyone who would try to make some kind of badge of dishonor or spiritual failure which we've seen a lot, or something to be awkward actually needs to be educated. We would say that as a whole. But here's the deal. There's another kind of depression, and it's more tied to our brokenness that we all feel than actually maybe a chemical deficiency. And it's the one most of us feel. The depression that comes when you're emotionally depleted. Maybe you felt that over the COVID season, over whatever change of life. Maybe everything's going really, really well, but you know somebody who is hurting. And the scripture says we should care. Rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer or weep with those who weep. Because a lot of times we know when you've been there, maybe you're there right now, life has beat you down. You're kind of just like you're lying in the fetal position. You can't even talk about it hardly because all the hits and hurts that you feel right now. Maybe you've been going really hard, you stood your ground and you just, you can't take it any longer. I think we've all been there to some respect. We felt emotionally spent, emotionally broken, emotionally empty. There are a lot of us who have spent times reflecting on this and kind of thinking through some of causes or getting insight from other people. I know I've gotten the opportunity to get insight from other people and have battled some of it myself. Not because of a lack of faith, but because life can be hard. I didn't plan for my dad to be in federal prison, right? I didn't plan for biologically and uh, epigenetics to try to take over my family in any way because my grandmother has bipolar disease disorder. I, you know, you don't, you don't plan for some of the things that come your way. And sometimes you just don't have enough to roll with the punches. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we hit this wall. And here's the deal. Sometimes when, when we hit this wall and we just don't have any more to give, what we start doing is we start skimming. When I say skimming, it's when you, you begin, you start to like conserve energy or cut back in key areas of your life so that you can kind of just keep all the balls in the air. I don't know if you've ever done that. Maybe you walked in the room today and your first time you come to church or you get social anxiety and you're just like, ah, oh, it's really hard because a lot of us are still exercising the muscle of like seeing other people outside of Zoom, even now. Just hit that wall. And so you start kind of skimming. I think what we do is we, we start to skim in our relationships. So relationally. So maybe with a marriage that becomes more and more superficial. Maybe you're skimming and you respond by putting bandages over major wounds. You're looking for quick fixes. 
come home at the end of the day hoping there aren't any problems. Everybody all right? Because you just don't have the time or especially the energy to deal with it, whatever it is. What happens then, intimacy becomes a thing of the past and it ultimately and eventually dies. A lot of times we start skimming, not just relationally, but even, even if you're a parent with your kids or maybe as a kid, this you, you know this is what your parents did. You're just not close anymore. You see like a little problem going on with your kid and then you, you start, you see like there's a red flag and they're veering off course, but you look the other way because you just don't have the emotional energy to deal with it. I'm not talking to anybody ever probably. We start to skim emotionally. So we don't really pay attention to hurt, anger, guilt, or sadness in our own life. Like we can't even connect personally to it, much less have compassion for other people, but we just march on, we just push down, we suppress, we just go. And that's our society. Maybe you start to skim spiritually. Your prayers are kind of just reduced to just a cry for help. You ever had that? Just constantly, God, just help me, help me. It's called Houston traffic, help me, help me, Jesus. Worship is reduced to just thanking God for seeing you through another day without everything crashing down around you. All of this ultimately will lead to this diminished capacity, again, to be able to love, to have compassion or sensitivity for other people because you can't give what you don't have. And you can't summon like the emotional energy to make it happen. You're just drained. Can anyone relate to this at all? For a lot of us, it might be medical, it might be chemical, but a lot of it, I think, is the speed of life, the weight of life, and the responsibilities of our life. I would say especially the speed of life. We don't have time. We don't take time. Several years ago, uh, Coach K, Mike Shusheski, the head coach the Duke basketball team, this was back like in 1994, he left his position. And he pointed the reason why he, he left for a season because he had a bulging disc in his back. But an article was generated by ESPN in an interview where he actually confessed that it was less about a bulging disc and more about a bulging life. Some of his words, he, he looked around and the daughter he thought was eight was now 12. His marriage was suffering. His life had become so saturated with activity to the point it began to fall apart. I think that's how a lot of us feel. Like you look at him and what he's doing, how he's coaching. I mean, even with the dream team back in the day and like this guy is successful and everything's great. And yet the speed of life and the brokenness that he's not stopping to deal with is actually everything around him is crumbling. We all tend to like push life to the limit. We're going to race here and we're going to push here and we're going to extend ourselves another place. And we run as hard as we can, but then we just reach this point where we can't run anymore. Typically, we will hit a wall, we'll burn out. We don't always even notice it though. We just find ourselves dealing with anxiety or find ourselves dealing with, I can't handle one more thing. And the biggest problem that happens then 
is out of it, you start seeing a vulnerability to sin. I mean, we're seeing this now with uh, heads of corporations, you see with even pastors that I'm not uh, uh, crediting them or saying anything good about some of them that have been falling, but you see you're in a pace, you're in a place, you're not, you don't have the right perspective in order to live the life that you're supposed to live and you've left God behind while you're searching for other things and all of a sudden you're vulnerable to sin. You start to push the limit because you're so drained dry and you desperately just want to feel something or feel better, you start to look for comfort, which is most people's gods. You start to feel, want to just feel good and search for some kind of release or anything just to get kind of a quick hit emotionally. Your tanks are empty. Here's the thing though, where's God in all this? Because so much we're so then focused on ourself or just angry at God and how we got where we are that we don't think about what he thinks about this. I want to look at somebody who encapsulates this to a T, and his name is Elijah. Elijah was probably the most celebrated and also the most revered Old Testament prophet. He lived during a time when people were constantly, like today, chasing after false gods, worshiping idols, dabbling into all sorts of like pagan, occultic stuff. It's a mist of the children of Israel, and he's the prophet standing there as the spokesman, as the man of God, as the representative of God to those people at the time. So imagine the pressure. He is the guy. And this dude had an awesome run as a prophet. If you know anything about him, I'll give you a few of his accolades. God empowered him to call for rain, rain to end for three years. And then rain start back up again just simply by voicing the words. That's some power right there. During a famine, he touched a jar of flour and miraculously the jar never went empty. He touched a jug of oil and it never ran dry. We love those sermons, right? He raised a young boy from the dead, and he's one of the only few people that God used to raise someone else from the dead besides Jesus. His climax that we're going to talk about today is at Mount Carmel. Check this out. We've got a picture of Mount Carmel because we got to go there uh, with some of our church members. This is the Jezreel Valley looking east from Mount Carmel. We're, we're on the mountain, roughly, area that this great battle, the, like the Super Bowl of conflict happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah by himself, the supreme underdog. And you see this dramatic, amazing showdown. Let me give you a little bit of the setup and then we're gonna get to the scripture. So Elijah, he goes to the king, Ahab, and he's prompted by God to go to the king. And, and, and he says, you think you're worshiping Baal and you think he's a god? He said, let's settle it. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of everybody doing whatever. We're called to worship the Lord. You're having everybody worship Baal. Let's get all of your prophets, 450 prophets. Let's cut two bulls for a sacrifice, but we're not going to burn them the sacrifice. We're going to call on our God, our respective gods, to burn them for us. And there's 450 of you and only one of me. So he's like, let's go. What does the king say? Lay up got this. Easy. So the prophets of Baal go first, right? They start calling on their God, morning to noon. Nothing happens. They're shouting, screaming, crying out, Baal, answer us. And here's where we pick up the story, 1 King 18. And at noon, 
Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the Lord, the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. Remember, he's alone by himself doing all this a lot. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Again, this is miraculous because there are a time of famine. There's not a lot of water right now. So this is not only miraculous, but crazy. And he says, do it a second time. And not only that, just so you know, I've got nothing under my sleeves. Do it a third time. When the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, are, you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then we see later, he orders the people to seize the prophets of Baal. And they kill them. And this idol-worshiping King Ahab has nothing to say, but it was a bad day for him and a great day for a prophet. You imagine, like, God showing him, you're just like, that's right, just dunked on you guys. This is it. But the problem was, not only was Ahab not happy, but his wife who really ruled, her name was Jezebel, and that's the euphemism we use for evil, treachery, deceit, Jezebel. She actually really ruled, and she was really mad. They just lost a lot of prophets. Elijah won. So what did she do? She told Elijah not. We're coming to the Lord, revival, which is what Elijah thought, finally, I mean, come on, this is the sign, this is the thing, I've been working so hard for all of the miracles up to this moment, and she sends out a message, you're dead, man. Can you imagine if you've ever had the, the biggest glory of your life just to shatter down? You'd think maybe Elijah's just full of faith, he's a prophet of God, he's like, man, it's all good, God's good all the time, all the time, God's good. Actually, he was pretty wasted, run down emotionally. He was spiritually exhausted. Because the scripture had said God actually kind of helped him and transported him even to another city, another place. But all his life, work, ministry, effort, responsibilities, duties, the prophet left him busted. First Kings 19 says this. Here's his response. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, 
It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. We see this man, this great conquering man with all the weight of the world. And we see this moment of despair to the point even suicide. I'm done with life. I'm so exhausted. I've got nothing else to give. So what did God do? How did God react? And this is what I want to show you in the next three. As we built depression and how hard it is and what it is and how we should have empathy and sympathy and really even confession. Say, hey, I'm struggling. There are prescriptions that God actually gives us. The first one we see is God actually does three things if we pay close attention. And the first one is he gives a physical prescription. Verse six, here's God's response. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to horror of the mount of God. This is a beautiful scene that it's easy if you read the Bible too quickly and not pay attention to the compassion and the love of God. That he doesn't say, bro, just give some more faith. He doesn't say, aren't you a prophet? What's wrong with you, son? What does he do? He sends him an angel to give him a meal. He feeds him physically. Sometimes when we're in that place of exhaustion, a caring, even as Brian said earlier, someone, I'm proud of you. Someone bringing you a meal, someone caring for you, you being that person for someone else. We see a God that cares, not just for the spiritual or emotional, but also for the physical. What a great God we serve. And then the angel says to him, this journey is too great for you. And this wasn't a proclamation of condemnation, like you're bad, but actually compassion and empathy. What is he ultimately saying through this angel? I know you and I know what you've gone through. I know how you're feeling. And look what he says. First thing God says, just stop what you're doing. Stop running and rest. And this is probably one of the hardest things for us to do in the world. See, God knew he was tired, he was hungry. So what did God do? He fed him. And then he put him to bed. I love uh, Psalm 23 from a sheep's perspective. It says, you make me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes God just makes you lie down. But he wants you to just rest because you're in the mode of go, go, go. I'm going to be okay. And God says, no, no, no. Rest. In fact, I can do more in one hour through a whole you than you can do in 167 other hours for the rest of the week by yourself. This is the God we serve, but he cares for his physical needs. And this might be our same prescription. And I think oftentimes it is, especially I talk to people all the time and you get around guys like, what are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm working out at 5am and, uh, and then I got to go to work. And, uh, and it's like, everything is like next. And it, what if you just said, man, I ain't doing nothing this week. Everybody'd be like, what a loser. What's wrong with you? Because our culture is go, 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 but we're dying on the inside. 
Now, this doesn't mean we don't work hard. We work hard, but man, you better rest well and rest hard as well like it's not contingent on you because you ain't a good savior. You're not even whole yourself. You think you're going to save your workplace? You're struggling on the inside. You think you're going to save your church? You're going to save all of Christianity? You're going to save all of your family and marriage on your own? And God says, dude, sleep. Eat. Relax. Rest isn't weird. Not resting is weird. Interesting book, and he describes a society that never rests, never sleeps, never quits, and never stops. Then he says this about how in all of his studies that he's seen and in his research, he's found that the problem is that we are not built for that type of world and the world we have created. And, and here's the phrase he uses, that kind of world that never stops, 24-hour society, ignores the law of our limits. We've got to rest or our bodies will break down. Here's the second thing, prescription. Not only our physical, but our spiritual. Let's see what happens next. First, Kings 19.11, and he said, go out, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind of an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Man, that, that, is, that is such a powerful, I've heard people preach on that so many times, such an amazing, amazing thing. But listen to what, what it's actually saying. He's in this deep depression, he's discouraged, he's depleted. And in that, God shows exactly where to find himself exactly where to find God. God wasn't in the activity. He wasn't in the effort. He wasn't in that full court press that we are always in. And you know this because if you ever had that moment where you're just trying to be still before the Lord and you're trying to be quiet or you're trying to have what, you know, what we used to call a quiet time or just spending time with God, what happens as soon as you sit down to do it? Your head starts screaming. You're talking about wind, earthquakes. I mean, you're thinking about this, you're thinking about that and all the things I gotta do and all these things. But what happens is the longer you slow down, all of a sudden, God says, I'm not in all that. And he comes and he whispers. See, most of us don't have the discipline to rest, much less to wait spiritually. When's the last time you're just alone with the Lord? It's a really popular story about the colonial history of Africa, and, and it, it tells the story of a traveler that took this long journey. And he recruited some of the local tribesmen to assist him in carrying his load. So he's, he's in one place, he's trying to go another place, and he's got these local tribesmen. And the first day, they're like moving really fast because he's just on a mission. Like, we're going to get there. And they, they, they get the first day ahead of schedule. So on the second day, he gets up early, and he's like, yes, we're going to breed it. We're, our destination, we thought we were going to hit it here, but we're going to hit it here faster. 
and he's trying to get on this journey and get moving. And, and the tribesmen said, no, we're, we're going too fast. We need to rest. And here's, here's the word they gave him. I like this. They told him, we've gone too fast on the first day. And now we're waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. I love that. Many of us need soul catch up with our bodies. We see Elijah's physical condition and God tends to that rest. We see spiritual conditions, just wait, listen, I want to speak to you. And lastly, we see something as powerful is a relational prescription. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what's going on? One thing that drained Elijah emotionally, mostly and even physically, is that he had been trying to do everything God called him to do all alone. Most of his exploits that we see him doing is he's by himself. And what does God say? God says, hey, invite some people into your relational orbit. You're in the midst of storm internally. You don't have any anchors for this storm. And you think it all depends on you. I mean, it's amazing. He's like, dude, you're not alone. There's 7,000 people that haven't bowed to Baal. But how many of us in the midst of this, these trials, turmoils, and depression, we think I'm by myself. No one else is experiencing this. And God would say the same to us. We can't be those people that say, I don't need anybody. That's actually more of a sign of stupidity and weakness than strength. Here's the question then, do you have a spiritual friend? Someone who's following Christ who can encourage you to do the same, to help you know you're not alone. Do you, maybe you have a mentor someone you can talk to or pray with. Maybe have you, have you taken advantage of good Christian counseling? We're gonna talk about this next week and I, I'm gonna give you some websites of people for free Christian counseling. Are you in a small group at church? Do you have people that are for you? Or are you trying to fly solo when God's called you to be a part of a family? Ultimately, sometimes we just need people to do life with us. God cares about you physically, spiritually, relationally, and I would say the most important aspect of a prescription and the greatest prescription when dealing with any kind of mental health, much less depression, is the gospel, hope. Feel hopeless when you don't see a future. You don't, you start to believe things that aren't even true, create realities that might not ultimately be true. But here's the question what is the gospel? Because this series is the gospel and. And many of us don't know what the gospel is. The gospel to us is like maybe we think of gospel music or we think of just really good advice. 
But see, the word gospel means good news, not good advice. And the idea is that a king would go to war and they would fight and the people back at the town, the women and children and people that are taking care of the city would be waiting to hear a herald that would come in and either tell them good news or bad news. And that herald would come in if they won the war. They don't know about it. He comes in and he shouts. This is what an evangelist is. He shouts, not good advice. Here's what we've got to do now. That's if we lost. Now we got to serve these people and we got to have their culture. But the good news is not advice. It's news. It's something that has happened, not something you have to do. And those people in that city would hear him herald the good news, the gospel. And it's something you enter into. I think of as we, we celebrate in June, Juneteenth, and the people, the slaves that didn't know they were free until people finally came a couple years later to say, you are free. And now the advice you need and the thing you need is how to live free because I've never lived free. So we do that in church and we talk about that. And we have small groups because there are things we can do to be free and wisdom we can walk in. But it all starts with the herald that says, good news not advice. Every other religion gives you good advice. Act like this, dress like this, talk like this. Christianity is the only religion that says Jesus did it all. He conquered it. Good news. And it gives us hope that because he did it and the way he did it, I can now walk in that same victory as I learn to walk as a free person. Here's a paragraph for what the gospel is. The gospel is good news, not advice, that God became man in Jesus Christ. I mean, that alone, I don't know, if you've ever had those times where you're just down, you feel lonely, nobody cares about you, you're like, where are you, God? Knowing that God just said, I'm going to become man, and he didn't come in as king and just rule everybody, he came as a servant, as a slave, that he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died in my place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the son of God and offering the gift of salvation to all who repent, change the way you think and act, and believe this good news. It's not what you muster up, because that's just more work. Like, you're already exhausted, and God's like, okay, you got to do more. He's like, no, 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 you've got to receive better, which means you need to lay down, surrender, take care of yourself physically, spiritually relation. That's the entry point. And then he starts to teach you how to live this life. Bow your head with me. Father, we thank you that you are good. God, there's many hurting people in here or no people that are hurting. Maybe on the outside, they look like everything's going great, but on the inside, they're struggling. Lord, I pray today they first hear the gospel, the good news, that you are not a God that doesn't know our problems, but you suffered even without sin more than any of us have rejected, harmed to the point of bleeding and death. You understand pain more than all of us, and yet you also conquered it. Thank you for your good news, God. And I pray for those that are in here Maybe today you're like, okay, this is a very serious message, but it is because this is a serious thing. 
Maybe today you're battling. Just with head bowed, eyes closed, we're not trying to out you or anything. But just as a gesture of confession, because sometimes that's the beginning of healing. If you're saying, I'm, I'm really struggling with depression, with loneliness, this has really spoken to me. Would you just raise your hand for me? Thank you. Hands going up. All over. I want to pray for you. God, I thank you for those in this room that are bold enough to confess their weakness. And you promise this, God, that you will exalt those who humble themselves and you will humble those who exalt themselves. You love the humble. You hear the cries of the weak. And I pray, Father, right now, everyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, will experience your freedom, your presence that destroys all loneliness. Lord, and hope in who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name.